The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. The uh, scripture today is actually Luke chapter 11, verse 29 through 36. That's Luke chapter 11, verse 29 through 36. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, It will be wholly bright as when a lamp, when its rays, gives you light. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Ask for help. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, just for the honor of uh, being able to work through your word with these wonderful people. Uh, Thank you that we can be together, Lord, and spend time hearing the very words of Jesus Christ. Uh, What an honor it is. What a thrill it is. Not only was he speaking uh, to the people in his own day, but by your Holy Spirit, um, you are speaking to us right now. So help me me teach this faithfully, Lord, and uh, give us ears to hear, eyes to see what you're saying. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were paying attention, you had to hear that Jesus is being rather confrontational in this passage. Rather conversational, confrontational, so even saying things like, well, you're evil and blind, and it's not going to go good for you on Judgment Day. Okay, that's just bringing it, bringing it right home, isn't it? Why is he being so confrontational? Why? What's going on? Well, uh, we're continuing our study through Luke's gospel, and before we work through this passage in chapter 12, I'd actually like to remind you of a passage in chapter 5. A passage in chapter 5, I think it helps us Understand the passage in chapter 12 gives us a little bit of a framework. In chapter 5, Jesus is going to deal with two groups. You got a tax collector. What do you remember about those? Big, bad, hairy sinners, right? Just the, the explicit, super bad, everybody knows that's a bad sinner kind of a sinner. Um, broken, life's a mess, rebellious against God. He knows it, far from God. You got a tax collector. Then the other character Jesus is gonna deal with is Pharisees and scribes. And what are they like? 
They're so good you can't stand it, right? They are so good. They never miss church. They have the Bible memorized. They are moral people. They follow the rules as best they can, and it's not a joke. They, they really do. So you've got religious, moral folks, and you've got the really bad sinner. Now look at the story, Luke 5, 29 to 30. We've seen this before, but let's remember Luke 5, 29 to 30. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of who? Tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you what? Eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. So just stop for a moment. Levi was a tax collector, and Jesus said, follow me. So Jesus comes to this worst of the worst and says, come on, belong to me. And the Levi does, he goes, he goes quickly, he wants it, and then he has a whole party, invites all his other sinner friends. In Jesus' honor, and Jesus is happy to go and sit and eat with them. And in the ancient Near East, when you eat with somebody, you're saying, let's be friendly. So he's eating with them. And then there's the Pharisees and the scribes. What's their response to Jesus? They're, they're grumbling. What, what are you doing? What are you doing? See, they're shocked that Jesus would eat with the sinners, but they're not shocked that he would eat with them. They think they have it all together, and so there's an enmity towards Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in verse 31. Look at what Jesus says in verse 31, Luke 5, 31, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I love the kindness of Jesus here, right? He came to call sinners, to save sinners. Um, But what did Jesus compare himself to here in this verse? A doctor, right? He's a doctor. He's a physician. It's, it's, an, it's an interesting kind of framework to see Jesus with. You know, people who are desperately sick and know it run to the doctor. When you're desperately sick and you know it and you have no hope, you run to the doctor because you know you're sick. You know you're not going to make it. But there's a different kind of sickness. You ever, you've ever had a friend or a family member who maybe was an alcoholic? Are they sick? What do you do when you tell them, hey, you're sick? They act out with rage sometimes. They run from the doctor. Because they'll say, what? I'm not really sick. I'm not really sick. So interesting. Who's running to Jesus in the book of Luke? Those who know they're sick. And who is it that are running from Jesus? It's those who think they aren't sick. And so it makes you wonder, what's the real sickness? And, uh, and, and how does Jesus have to act with somebody who has the sickness so bad that they don't think they're sick? What do you have to do? You have to confront. You have to intervene. You have to push so that maybe they could see how sick they are and come to the doctor they so desperately need. So with that kind of framework in our minds, let's go now to chapter 12. We're in chapter 12, start at verse 14, because really this morning is part two from our conversation of last week. It's part two of what we looked at last week. Let's just remember what happened to set the story up, verses 14 to 16. Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, prince of the demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. 
So we remember this incredible moment. There's this man who's deaf and he can't speak and it's from a demon, this horrible oppression and Jesus heals him instantly, powerfully, amazingly. The crowd had three responses. Do you see what they do at the end of verse 14? The mute man spoke and the people, what? Marveled, shocked. They weren't skeptics going, I don't know, this looks like a fake miracle to me. Nobody could do that. It was too powerful. It was too, nobody could write it off as a cheap trick right there in front of the crowd. Everybody saw what had happened. They knew this man before. They see him after. They can't argue the reality of the miracle. So now they're stuck. They're stuck because they can't argue with the power of what happened. So what do they say in verse 15, the second way they respond? Some of them said, he casts out demons by who? <laughs> by Satan. Why would they say Jesus is satanic? I mean, it's, it sounds outlandish to us, doesn't it? If you've been watching Jesus' life, everything he does is kind. Every miracle horns on people, right? A, I'd mess with them, wouldn't you? People you didn't like, you know, you, you could really mess with them. Jesus never does that. Always healing people, building it up. Why on earth would they say he's from Satan? Well, because they're stuck. They've marveled at his power. They have to admit supernatural power. They don't have a way out. And if they admit it's supernatural power from God, then what's the next implication? We have to worship you. We have to follow you. We have to trust you. We have to obey you. We have to look to you. You're the one. But they don't want to do that. Desperately, they don't want to do that. And so they got to wriggle out, and what's the way out? They can't argue that it's supernatural. They don't want to follow him as God, so let's... Must be from Satan. Whew. Now it's still supernatural, and we don't have to obey. So they're slandering him to get out from under it. And then look what they do. It's kind of a mockery. We didn't deal with it last week. We're going to look at it this week. Look at verse 16, the third thing they do. So they marvel, then they slander him. Verse 16, while others, too, what do they want to do? Test him, keep seeking a, a sign from heaven. Now, isn't it funny that right after he heals a guy who couldn't hear and couldn't talk, they're like, well, give us a sign. <laughs> Prove to us that you're really of God. Prove it to us. So if you want to catch up, uh, the sermon from last week's on the website. Jesus gave an argument, a warning, and an invitation. This week, we're going to look at his response part two to this crowd who wants a sign proving that he's of God. So Jesus is going to give a verdict on the crowd, verses 29 to 32. A verdict. He's going to call them evil. So what are we supposed to do with something like this? I just want you to be ready as we walk through it. What are we supposed to do with something like this? Are we supposed to sit in the chairs and go, yeah, that crowd was evil. Woo! Glad I'm not like them. <laughs> well, I, I don't think you are like them, generally speaking, praise God. But uh, shouldn't we learn from this? Shouldn't we see what was evil about them? Look for it within us. Want, want it not to remain there. So we're going to see his verdict on the crowds at 29 to 32. Then he's going to give a diagnosis and kind of an encouraging warning, if you want. A diagnosis and a, hey, let's move this way. That's going to be verses 33 to 36. So what should we do as we hear his diagnosis for the crowd? Hey, listen, learn from him. Take it to heart. And then finally, Jesus is going to give the remedy to the sickness. It's going to be in verse 29. It's this weird sign. The one sign, he, they ask him for a sign. He's like, I'm not going to give you any except for one. What is it? Well, we'll see. And that's our healing. So the verdict, the diagnosis, the remedy. Let's look at the verdict. Starting in 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a what? An evil generation. Um, 
I love Jesus here because he has no fear of crowds. You know, if um, anytime you're trying to lead something and the crowds start coming, doesn't that kind of make you feel, okay, you started a business and the crowds start coming? Okay, you're, you're, you're working a church and the crowds start coming? You know, glory, hallelujah. And Jesus has all the crowds coming. You think, hey, this is what we've been waiting for, right? This is what we want. And he looks at them all and says, y'all are evil. <laughs> y'all are evil. Uh, he just drops it like that. Um, he's not there to crowd please. He's there to crowd save. Amazing. This generation is evil. Why does he call them evil? Because it seeks for a sign. Anybody a little confused here? Is that, is that so bad? Uh, maybe you've asked God for a sign. You ever done that before? Kind of in your own prayer. Lord, if you love me, could you? Or, or I'm trying to make a choice here, Lord. Could you give me a sign on which way to go? Maybe that was you. You're like, is, is, was that evil? Well, I'm not sure how wise that always is. But it's not the same thing as what's happening here. Okay. Again, what is the sign they're asking for? You know, when you ask God for a sign, you already believe Jesus was of God and you, you want a direction somehow. This is, hey, show us a sign that you are God. We don't believe you. Do you hear that? In fact, it's show us a sign that you're not evil. We don't believe you. Prove to us you're of God and not wicked. So here, here you see what they're doing. They're slandering Jesus despite all the evidence. That's the problem. They're slandering him despite all the evidence. You know, we're in Luke chapter, what chapter are we in? We're in 11. We're not in Luke 1. We've been walking through Luke for a long time. What have we seen of Jesus? Can you remember? Is this the first miracle he ever pulled off? No, it's been over and over and over and over and over again in front of thousands and thousands of people. Sickness is nearly gone from every neighborhood. So, um, and they've heard, is this the first time he's ever spoken? No, we've heard him speak over and over and over again. It's the highest ethical standards of love and of, that we've ever heard. Should they need a sign at this point? That's the idea here. Should they need a sign? I mean, you and I, you know, even if we were just there, we see him heal the guy, and they're like, well, give us a sign. And so Jesus is dealing with this real stubbornness. What's he going to say? Uh, again, look, if you looked at John 6.2, look at how John describes all of Jesus' miracles. John 6.2, a large crowd was following Jesus because they saw the what? The signs he was doing on the sick. So if every miracle is a sign about who Jesus is, how many have we seen so far? Countless. And I kind of stumbled onto this this week. Surprised me again. Look at John chapter three, verse one. John chapter three, this verse one. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Of the who? Who's he work for? The Pharisees, okay? Named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. And this, can, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, now pay attention, this is what he said, Rabbi, what's the next word? We know. We the Pharisees know. And what is it that they know? You are a teacher come from God. Ingest this. Internally in their meetings here, what do they know about Jesus? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. We know you are from God. And what is the spin they're throwing out at the crowds? 
You're of Satan. Do people really do this? Can people really have a a haunting knowledge of the truth and maybe in the secret places admit it, but out in public spin the whole thing backwards and turn it around because what is it that makes people know and believe truth to some extent and yet fight that very truth and rebel against that very truth in speech and in practice? And we're dealing here with the, the stubborn sin of the human heart, aren't we? Where we know but we don't know. And part of why we don't know even though we know is because we don't want to know. Desires of the heart. And so this conversation here is they're asking for a sign and Jesus is just saying straight up, (laughs) you've seen every sign anyone could ever need to see. The issue is not lack of signs. The issue is you don't like what the signs say. So what do you do now? And here you see Jesus give his verdict. You're evil. I mean, (laughs) there's not a lot of subtlety to that, is there? It's just, y'all are evil. Why would anyone look at the evidence about Jesus and reject it like this? Because you're evil. (laughs) That's what Jesus says. Is it the same today? It is. Look what Jesus says in verse 31. You'll be condemned on the day of judgment. Verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up at the what? The judgment. Well, let's all just take a deep breath and remember, guess what there's going to be? There's gonna be a day of judgment. Jesus is king and Lord and judge, and we will each stand before him for how we've responded to him. It's sobering, isn't it? There's a day of judgment. And what's so amazing about the day of judgment is that day will have such height of justice to it that in some cases, witnesses from all history will be brought forward to pop all excuses. Witnesses from all history, Jesus says, could be brought forward to explode any excuse. So for instance, look who's going to rise up at the judgment with the men of Jesus' generation and condemn them. Who is it? Verse 31, mouth. Who is that? I love Jesus' knowledge of Scripture, don't you? A story that you think might be kind of obscure. He's just popping that out, throwing it at them. Uh, and, and by the way, let's remember who the, who the, what the crowd is like, okay? Is this a crowd of tax collectors? No. This is a moral religious crowd. So we saw last week, the the worst immorality you can have is your self-righteousness that thinks you aren't immoral, right? This is a moral religious crowd, and you gotta love Jesus throwing this out there. A pagan woman will testify against you. (laughs) Who is the queen of Sheba? Have you heard of her? Do you remember? Uh, I heard somewhere Sheba, somewhere around Yemen, I think. You'd have to read back in 1 Kings chapter 10. She hears about the wisdom of Solomon in Israel. And I'll just, I'll go ahead and read her own words to you. This is 1 Kings 10, verse six. So this queen, she makes this huge trip, dangerous trip, expensive trip to go listen to Solomon. And this is her response, 1 Kings 10, 6. She said to the king, 
The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Verse eight, happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. And then verse nine, so important. Blessed be who? The Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he's made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. She has heard and come to seek with all her might. And when she comes to seek, who does she find? She finds not just Solomon, but somehow Solomon or somebody tells her about the God of Israel. And she believes and she praises him. But the thing to pay attention to is this. Who is it that she had to listen to? Solomon. How hard did she have to work to come listen? Real hard. What did she do when she heard? She believed. So what, this is not the last we're going to hear from her, Jesus says. She's going to give another speech on Judgment Day. When this generation comes up, because let's compare the two, Jesus says, she will rise up and condemn you because here you are moral, religious Jews with the scriptures, and she's just a, a pagan queen. And she worked so hard just to hear Solomon, and then she believed it, but you supposedly moral and righteous, I walked into your neighborhood, Jesus says, and I did miracles right in front of your face, and you still won't seek me, and you still won't listen to me, and you won't believe it. So what is her condemnation going to be? See, somebody supposedly far worse responded far better based on far less. If I went and believed what I had, then how guilty are you for not believing what you had? The issue is not evidence. The issue is this heart. She'll judge them. He says something greater than Solomon is here. He does it again in verse 32. The men of Nineveh, Jesus says, will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. Why? For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. It's another uh, comparison, illustration. What do, you, what do you know about Jonah? Well, he's like the punkiest prophet there is, right? I mean, he's, he's terrible. How do you like your prophets when God's like, hey, go do this? And he's like, no. I want you to go over there. I'm going over here. I mean, he's, he's a punk. He's not, he's not exactly like you know, exemplar of prophets. And if you read the book of Jonah, you hear his message. It's not the greatest, uh, the narrator doesn't give you this great expounding, finding common ground, you know, this, it's like repent or perish, you know. He's wearing the sign, turn or burn, walking through the city. It's, it's, not, the, it's not the most eloquent message from Jonah. And you realize he didn't even wanna go there, so he's not, his heart's not like full of love for his audience. He's a bigot and a racist. The reason you find out at the end of the book that he doesn't want to go is not because he's afraid for his life or something like that. He does not want Ninevites to be forgiven. 
He hates them. He's a racist. And so here's your, here's your disobedient, racist prophet, okay? And so he gets into, into Nineveh, this pagan, wicked, terrible city. Assyria was horrible. Nineveh was horrible. These, these are pagan sinners, the worst of the worst. And so here you got this punk prophet, doesn't even want to be there, in this terrible pagan city, and what do they do? The whole thing, top to bottom, king to slave. They all repent. <laughs> Forgive us, oh God. <laughs> I'm kind of, sometimes I'm like, how come Jonah, who's a punk, gets a revival, you know? <laughs> they all repent. And so you get the same message, right? So Jesus is talking to this moral religious crowd. And uh, how would they think? How do they like it when Jesus says to them, a pagan, sinful city is going to condemn you on judgment day? Fire, just right in their face. And what will they say? Well, what kind of a preacher do the Ninevites have? Jonah. What was their response? Repentance. What kind of preacher did the Israelites of Jesus' day have? Jesus Christ. All his wisdom and love and kindness and miracles. And what did the self-righteous religious people of his day do with Jesus? Did they repent? They want to murder him. And so on judgment day, Jonah will get up and be like, or not Jonah, sorry. The Ninevites will get up and be like, somebody supposedly far less responded far better. Uh, based on far less revelation. You're evil, Jesus is saying, right? And we're gonna have witnesses from all history testify against you. What's Jesus doing with his, with, his, uh, with his crowds here? It is judgment, right? It is judgment. But it's also more than judgment because if, if God wants to judge somebody, he doesn't have to tell them first. He doesn't have to plead with them first. He doesn't have to argue with them first. What's he doing? Isn't there mercy in this, in this judgment? Wake up. Wake up. They're saying, hey, give us a sign. And he's like, you've been over-signed. You got signs coming out of your ears. I've been signing you for three years. You got the signs of the scripture. The issue is not the signs. The issue is you can't read them. Wake up. Do you see what you have? You know, in our day, it's not fashionable to call Jesus of the devil. I, I don't think I hear anybody do that. The religious leaders of all the religions, they, they don't call Jesus the devil, but they do something maybe that's worse. You know, the, our nation doesn't call Jesus the devil. We do something maybe that's worse because at least this crowd was marveling at his power and they had to do something with him and we just kind of write him off as a, a decent prophet or a good teacher. And how many folks, how many folks Say, well, just give me a sign. And what would Jesus say to the people of our day? You have every sign. Every sign in the pages of this book, in the witness of the apostles, in the history of the church, you have every sign. The issue is not the evidence the issue is your ability to respond to it. And again, let's remember who the crowd is. Who's the crowd here? Religious, moral people. These are our friends and our family say they're, they're good people, but they won't 
seek Jesus like the queen. And they won't repent like the city. And they just keep him over here. And Jesus calls it evil. So what should we do with that church? Well, internally, right? Follow the example of the queen. What is she showing you to do? Seek Jesus. Follow the example of the Ninevites. What's he showing you to do? What are they showing you to do? Repent, turn to him, trust him, believe him. And what's the message we have for the good people crowds? Sometimes we need to ask, are you really dealing with the evidence that's there? Right? Are you really dealing with it? Now we'll turn to Jesus' diagnosis, verse 33. Jesus is gonna give us an illustration based on the idea of light, verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Well, that's kind of self-evident, right? Um, When you go home at night and you turn on a lamp, do you then cover it with a large blanket so that it's completely dark? It's almost like silliness to bring this up. Why would he say this? Well, back up a little bit. The Bible loves this illustration of light, doesn't it? It's all over the Bible. Uh, I think one reason for that is who doesn't understand the illustration of light and darkness? (laughs) It's universal, every culture, anyone ever. You kind of get the idea of light and dark. I mean, it's even in our vernacular, right? Oh, that person really kept me in the dark. What did you mean? They didn't tell you the whole truth. Or uh, one of those Disney songs. And at last I see, do you know this one? The light. And what is she saying? Oh, I've found my true love. Okay, but, but, you know, I'm expressing here this illustration. Darkness is uh, symbolic for blindness or not seeing truth, okay? So uh, my daughter and I went camping and we were in the clouds and the the headlamp didn't work because the clouds are so thick and we're getting lost. We can't see. We don't know where to go. Light is uh, enlightenment or understanding. And finally, you've, you've got it. You see it. You know what to do. Doesn't light also speak to authority? Does it speak to authority? Okay. I, here's what I think about you. I think every day you submit and honor. You submit to and honor the authority of what light reveals to you. Don't you? How'd you know you didn't bump into the wall when you came into church today? How'd you know? You didn't even think about it. You just did it. It came natural. But what happened? The, sin, the sun rose, and you saw where the door was. Okay? Without even knowing it, you submitted to an authority of revelation that the light gave you. And in Orange County, it's always dark, or it's always light. Right? It's always light. You don't even need lights, really. In Orange County, it's always light. Do some traveling or go camping. And one day it'll be really dark. And then try to find your keys. Or, or try to walk down a mountain pathway. And, and you're not moving very fast. Okay? This revelation of truth that comes light into your eyeballs enables you to live life. And none of you ever put blindfolds over your eyes and say, you know what? I'm tired of this tyrannical authority of light. I wanna be my own light. And so I'm just gonna go, I don't, I don't need this light thing anymore. I'm just gonna go and create my own reality based on my authority. I can cross Beach Boulevard because I have the light. 
Well, that's insane. That's ridiculous. But this, this illustration of light has, I mean, you, are we totally independent creatures who make our own way? Or does even in the everyday aspects of life, doesn't it include a revelation that we must learn from and draw from and submit to in order to function? You have to be able to see, and you can't see all on your own. You need light. This is why it's such a big idea for the Bible. So when Jesus says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar under a basket, you know, his, his whole audience would be like, well, duh. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, I haven't done that either. I didn't come and give you a little bit of light and then hide the rest of it under a blanket so that you wouldn't really find it. Because again, what are they asking him for? A sign. And what does that assume? You haven't shown us everything. You haven't, in fact, whose fault is it in their mind that they don't believe? It's your fault. You haven't shown us enough. And so Jesus is saying, I didn't come with a light and then put a blanket on it. In fact, what does Jesus say about himself in John 8, 12? John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, some of the same crowd probably, saying, I am what? The light of the world. Do you see how amazing and fantastic this is? He is the light. In order for you to understand what life is about and to fit in and to live it properly, you have to see through him. He is the light. He's the revelation. So then we, we start to get what Jesus is saying with this illustration. Verse 34, your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body's full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. What does that mean? What does that mean? There's a phrase, I think it comes from the Talmud, that says this, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. We see the world not as it is, but as we are. In other words, deep inside that human heart, you got a whole bunch of desires, whole bunch of lessons, whole bunch of experiences, and they incline you in a certain direction. And then when you process experiences or claims of truth, those assumptions, those desires you have in there, they push you a certain way. And we like to think we're purely objective all the time, don't we? Totally objective. Maybe not. Maybe who we are affects and shades and turns how we see light. So when Jesus says, uh, when your eye is bad, your body's full of darkness. Did you see that in verse 34? Your eye is bad. So the translator could have helped us a little bit because guess what the Greek word for evil, you see that up there when Jesus says they're evil? Guess what the Greek word is for bad? Evil. That's what ties these two together. He says, you're evil, 
generation because you won't, you won't listen to the evidence. And then he says, and the reason you're evil is because your eye is evil. So which is it? Is it that they can't see or that they won't see? Little of both, huh? What is the can'tness about it? Why can't they see? How is it? He says, if your eye is bad, the whole thing in you is bad. What, what, is that, what does that get at? Well, remember, what are the crowds like? Moral and self-righteous. Okay, so how do they understand the world? Um, if I follow these rules, I'll be good, right? And then um, if others don't follow the rules, God likes me because I follow the rules enough, right? Do you see that's, that's their light? That's their light. That's, their, that's the way they understand things. That's the way they live it out. That's how they see. But is their light true light or is it actually pretty dark? It's dark. And yet, what do they do when the real light comes? They call the real light dark because their eyes broken. How they process the reality is broken due to, in part, sure, bad leaders, Pharisees and scribes, but due to also a, a dark heart. Look what Jesus says in John 3, 19. John 3, 19. This is the judgment, Jesus says. Light has come into the world, and people, what's the next word? Loved. So that gets you into desires now, right? That's what you want. So light has come, which you should be able to see if you're objective, but something gets in the way of seeing objective truth. And did you see what it was? What you love. The people loved, according to Jesus, what do they love? Darkness. So they call the darkness light, and they call the light dark, because they love what's dark. And the deepest motivation here is at the end of verse 19. They love the darkness rather than the light because, why? Their works were evil, and they don't want to change. Isn't this the picture of these crowds? Don't they have every, every evidence right in front of them? And yet they slander. We, we, we can't argue that it was supernatural. It was supernatural, so now what are we gonna do? We gotta call you satanic. Why? Because otherwise, if you're God, then I have to. But I love my works. I love my system. And I, so I'm gonna stay in the dark. I'm gonna stay in the dark. You guys, it happens all the time, doesn't it? Have, have you been there before? You knew what the implications of, of Jesus and who he is and what he's done meant, and you got close and you realized, oh, this is starting to threaten me. He wants to be actually my king. And if I do that, then, then this, and what those people think, and then that, ah. And, and we, we know people like this who got close and then they said, I can't, uh, no, I don't want it. And, and they leave the light, right? So the diagnosis, right? The problem is not the light. The problem is what? Sight. The problem's not the light, the problem is sight. Sight that's tied to the heart and what the heart wants. So you might say, well, how do you, Jesus, the, the, the warning here, right, is uh, make sure the thing you say is light is actually light. Everybody thinks they're in the light, right? Watch, uh, watch Oprah, so much light everywhere, okay? Deepak Chopra, light, find the light. Uh, you know, find the enlightenment, everybody's talking about light. But so, somebody's light is dark. And how do you know what the true light is? 
Well, according to Jesus, this is what he's given us so far. Who's the light? He is. Every sign points to it. How should you respond to him? Well, be like the queen and what? Come seek him. Be like the Ninevites and what? Repent and turn to him and do it according to his word. Look at Psalm 119, 105. Your word is what? A lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Here's how I know. Here's the rest of God's word speaking to me, mostly in Christ. Look down at verse 36. You see that this warning is also an amazing encouragement. Verse 36, if then your whole body's full of light, so again, if, if your eye's working, your whole body's full of light, having no part dark, it'll be wholly bright as when a lamb with its rays gives you light. So what is Jesus inviting you to? Get lit up. Full of his light. So he wants you to come and get eyeballs fixed so that you see right and you love right and you want right and, and all of a sudden it changes everything. I love C.S. Lewis' quote. He says, uh, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because I see, by it I see everything else. And folks, this is so true for me with Christianity. A huge reason I'm a Christian and not going anywhere else is because of how bad all the other options are. What's the, who's the one person that can make sense of everything, everything in life, every single thing? Jesus Christ. He is the light. And not only do we get, do we get filled with him, look how Ephesians 5.8 talks. Ephesians 5.8. For at one time you, Paul says to this church, you were what? Darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You are light. So what should you do? Because you are light. Walk as children of light. People who see the world and love through the filter of Jesus Christ, what he's done in his word. You are light. So the verdict is, hey, this generation is evil because they won't receive the evidence. The diagnosis is, the problem is not the light, it's your sight. You love the wrong things. You need new eyeballs. And now here's the remedy, the remedy. So back up into 29, when the, when the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except what? The sign of Jonah. Now, the first time you read that, that's just weird, isn't it? I wonder how his audience took that the first time. The sign of Jonah. So Jesus is saying, right, I'm going to give you one crowds. I'm going to give you one more sign. He said it, right? I'm going to give it to you. One more sign. Only one sign will be given to it. So I'm not here. I'm not just going to throw around miracles for you, um, but I'll give you one more sign. It's going to be the sign of Jonah. And what's the sign going to do? Remember? What are they asking for? Prove to us that you're of God. Prove to us. One more sign to prove it. All right. I'll give you one more sign that I am the light that you can trust my authority, that you should seek me, listen to me, rep repent to me. Look at how Jesus says this in Matthew 12, verse 40. 
Matthew 12, 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that's the sign. Huh. So you remember that story with Jonah, right? He, the ship's gonna get trashed in the storm. Jonah says, it's my fault, throw me over. Pagan guys are like, okay. They throw him over. And some, we don't know how this works. Some beast swallows him. And he's alive in the stomach. And he's down in there. How long? Three days. Gets thrown up onto the shore. That's what God does with disobedience prophets, right? He loves them, but he turns them into throw up. Gets thrown up onto the shore. And then he goes and preaches, and Jesus says, that's what I'm going to do. When does that happen? To our knowledge, Jesus never goes swimming out in the Mediterranean. Well, you know where it is, don't you, folks? The great irony is it's the crowds who want the sign are going to be the ones who are the vessels for the sign to actually occur. Because these crowds are going to take Jesus and they're going to shout, crucify him. Because they end up hating the light and loving their self-righteousness so badly that they would rather kill the light than turn to it. And they'll kill him on a cross. And the Pharisees and scribes will be part of it. And the chief priests will, will run it. And they'll put him in a tomb. For how long? Three days. And they'll even put a garrison of soldiers around it to guard it. But then on the third day, you read those gospels? The soldiers see something and they, they pass out. And that rock gets moved. And just like... Jonah got thrown up out of the beast. Jesus gets thrown up out of the earth in resurrection power. And there's your sign. And there's your remedy. There's your remedy. Because the problem in this passage is a self-righteousness and a self-independence that won't really take the evidence seriously and seek and trust and follow Jesus. And so what is this one sign that comes and is able to smash that hard heart and, and fix and open that crooked eye? It's the cross and resurrection. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but who? Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servant for his sake. And then now verse six, for God who said, what did he say? Let light shine out of darkness. When did he do that? When's the first time he did that? Creation, right? Let there be light. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts. Where's the next place he says, let there be light? It's in the hearts of his people. Let there be light. Ha! 
And now you can see. And what is it you see? He has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You can see. You can see. Do to your self-righteousness. See him on the cross, dying for your sins. Oh, it crushes it, right? I've got nothing in myself to be prideful about. I've got nothing to offer except my sin. And yet, what does the cross also show about his love? Can you still come even though you're totally unworthy? The cross not only shows you what you deserve, it shows you how loved you are, that he would pay it for you, all of your sins and the resurrection. Does that, does that prove to you that Jesus is the light? That this one who has this kind of power, this kind of love, this kind of truth, the one who is God himself would give himself up for you to have you and rise from the dead to save you and adopt you and bring you near? This is light. Where are you going to go that's better than Jesus? Where are you going to go? Is it yourself? Uh, anybody, anytime the other religions try to give me a track, I'm like, you can't give me anything better than what I have. You can't, you can't improve on Jesus. What are you going to give me? Where are, this is the light. And so in the fear of like, yeah, but if I come, I'll have to change. But you know what? You know what happens when you fall in love? You ever done that before? You start changing. Why? Because all of a sudden you, you want to be about this person. And you find them worth it. Isn't that just a little teeny illustration of what Jesus is like? He's the light. Will your, will your life change when you trust yourself to Jesus? Yeah, but for those of you who know Jesus, do you regret any of that change? Are you kidding me? He's the light. I could see. I could see. He's the light. And so this great sign, the light of Jesus Christ, the glory of God in the face of Jesus through his cross and resurrection. Let's turn to the light. So folks, can you see? Don't be independent and self-righteous like this crowd. Listen to him like that ancient queen. Repent to him like that ancient city. And look to that ancient sign that Jesus died and rose again, and he's the light of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for the light that you are and the light that you give. We thank you that by grace, through faith, you make us children of light. Help us to enjoy your light, trust your light, turn to you with all we are, knowing that you're worth it, knowing that you are good, knowing that you love us and you are true. Lord, shine your light through us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.